feel like most people at the moment, you're going to have a little bit of a wrestle with burnout and overwhelm. Dr. Karen Morley, author of Flexibility, has another couple of options. Flexibility, she has a three-step guide. You've got to know, know what matters, do what matters, and you've got to influence what matters. And if we can do that, leaders and people all around the place are going to be a lot happier. So if you want to get a little bit more flexible with your life, have a listen to Karen Morley. Okay, Dr. Karen Morley, author of Flexibility. Welcome to the Your Next Read podcast. Now tell me, who should read this book? Who should read? Uh, high achievers, people who are focused on doing good work, who like to work hard, who like the success of working hard, but are also very agreeable um, and who tend to take on a lot of things um, and maybe don't prioritise themselves and their own needs as much. So people who are high achievers but feeling like they want more and they want more balance in their lives. Yeah, right. It's, a, it's an interesting point you make that the people who are agreeable, do you find that in your research and stuff, have you found they're the ones more likely to burn out if you're more agreeable? I think so. And I think it's about taking on responsibility um, and saying yes to a lot of things. I mean, I contrast people who are agreeable with people who are more ambitious and more concerned with their self and their career. Um, And I don't think they have uh, or bear that weight in the same kind of way. Um, and they're more focused on themselves, whereas those who are agreeable are really trying to focus on how to bring everyone together, how to make things work, how to get team cohesion, which means they're not just responsible for themselves and what they do, they're, they're feeling responsible for, you know, the bigger picture uh, and the people around them. It's such a, a, a weird sort of paradox that the, the more you try and help yeah. and the more you the more you try and be good and be a nice person and look after the people who you're leading, the more likely you are to cook yourself. Yeah, if you don't manage your boundaries well. Okay. Um, and so I think that's a, a really key reason for flexibility is about getting the clarity on why you do this, you know, why you're helping everyone, why you're pushing yourself, why you're not stopping most people know what advice they should be giving and taking themselves. Um, and, and so it really is about permission giving to think about what you do and how you engage in a different way without having to change who you are, without having to change your identity. So I'm sure you know that, you know, people you know, find it a bit distressing to think about changing who they are. But it's much easier to change what you do um, and how you do things. Well, I guess when you do change what you do and how you do them, you you kind of do change who you are a little bit as well, don't you? So we're yeah. all kind of mere bundles of habits. So it's, you know, the, the more you change what you do, the more you do change your identity a little bit in subtle ways, I guess. Yeah, I think that's true. But I, I think there's more fear or concern um, about playing around with who you are Uh And I think one of the things that I find in coaching that's really exciting is that as people change what they do and how they think about what they do and how they're engaging and give themselves permission to to try things that are quite different and maybe to push back to increase their boundaries, they can feel their identity changing and then it's very welcome. So I think as an outcome of change, it, it resonates well with people and it feels good uh, but as something that you might do, it seems a bit scary up front. Yeah, it can do. I, I guess when, do you feel that it's only the agreeable people that, that have those issues? So the, the ones that are a bit more perhaps Machiavellian and will do whatever they want, 
do they still struggle with the the sort of burnout issues and stuff you're talking about? I think less so. Um, and I mean, burnout was originally developed as a concept um, in relationship to people who are working in health, helping industries. So people who are working uh, in mental health settings or in health settings, you know, doctors, nurses, psychologists, social workers, those sorts of people whose job it was to really care about other people and take that kind of responsibility. And I think it makes sense to still think about it in that way. I mean, now it's got a formal definition uh, and a lot more thought around what it actually is. I think people who are more self-absorbed and focused on ambition in their careers, or as I say in the book, I think they're often pushing the high achievers. They're creating the workload expectations. They're continuing to drive and for them, it doesn't matter how many hours a day they work. Um, they're, kind, they're the kind of people who celebrate being always on. Right. Um, and, and so I think that there is well, that though? dichotomy. Do those people still burn out though? Yeah. They do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They may. And that's why, I mean, we see fantastic examples of people who've, who've been CEOs or, you know, worked in, um, you know, the stock exchange or trading or finance in those sorts of very high-octane settings who do get to a point where they burn out, they burn out, they see the light uh, and they pick up a very different kind of career. Mm. I guess some careers are also harder to to um, manage with the right kinds of boundaries. But it is a real problem. And one of the things I really um, debated with around writing this book is that so much about overwork and the demands of work are actually, they come from the system, you know, the, the sort of the system we've set up and as you become more senior or if you want to have more senior roles in organisations, you need to work harder. You know, you need to work longer hours. That's mm. just the expectation. So that's a real systemic issue. Um, and trying to change that is really what I've been trying to do, especially with some of the work I've done in the past around sort of gender and inclusion. How do we make workplaces more friendly for people who don't want to work all the hours um, but who are actually very good and we would be good in leadership role? But I came to the point that, I didn't see how I could change the system. So what I could do, try to do was to help people think about how they could reset themselves within the system. And then if enough people reset themselves, perhaps it creates the momentum and different kinds of conversations about work. And we can see change in that way. By having more people buying into what you're talking about, we can kind of change our expectations of what working hard looks like and more being effective, I think, would you say, rather than the actual amount that you're working? I, I think it does. I mean, don't, I, I don't know what sorts of conversations you're having with the people that you coach, but I'm certainly having many conversations about how much faster the pace of work is right now. So there seem to be a lot more expectations, things built up around COVID because we had to respond, we had to kind of do all sorts of different things. And then you might think, well, we'd go back to some kind of normal after that, and that doesn't seem to have happened. If anything, everybody just seems even busier. It's like we've figured out that we could do that, so we'll press ourselves just that little bit um, harder. Um, and so part of it is about getting away from... Um, that reality and not having to work long hours. But a lot of what people are doing seems to be really ineffective. We can talk about sitting through 
you know, hours and hours of Zoom meetings. They don't take a break. They don't stand up. I mean, someone uh, earlier today was saying, you know, people don't realise that it's difficult for, um, you know, women to sit down for four hours in a meeting. I'm thinking, well, Difficult for everyone to do why, that. Why would, why would you think that anybody should sit down for four hours um, mm-hmm. in a meeting? Where are the breaks? Where, where is the different kind of engagement? People, it seems like people are getting quite disembodied um, and that isn't good. Yeah, you think you cast your mind back to, th- say, 2019 and everyone's stress bucket was pretty full then. Yeah, maybe we all had a full plate then, and well, it wasn't no one was walking around thinking oh, I haven't got anything to do. I'm I'm too relaxed, and you know everything's too easy. And then we've thrown all this other stuff like learning how to work from home. And if you cast your mind back then, if someone says you can work from home, you think oh, I'll save a couple of hours on commutes and all of that sort of stuff, and it would all be better. And it just didn't pan out that way. Yeah, yeah. Some of it panned out in that, I mean, there are people who talk about not wanting to experience the commute again because they can be much more effective. They don't have to work so many hours. So I think that's fantastic. Um, I mean, I think the biggest challenge around that for some people is that organisations want people back in the office. They want to be able to see them and see what they do, that whole notion of presenteeism. If you can't see people working, they're obviously not working, which is like back with the dinosaurs, really. Um, Yeah, so those sorts of things change. But people haven't, you know, the the pace of work and the expectations of work haven't gone back to even 2019 levels. So I agree with you, Luke, that people were pretty busy then. We had the big blip in 2020, and here it is still in 2022. One one of the things I got from reading your book, and it's a great book, um, was the importance of doing your recovery deliberately. Can you you kind of expand on that for everyone listening and and give us a few tips on, on sort of how to recover on purpose, if you like? It's related to the notion of resilience Um, and especially high achievers think that they can just keep pushing through because they are, in fact, generally very resilient people. So you can just keep pushing and your resilience will stretch with that. Then you'll get to some point in the future, maybe it's the, the evening or maybe it's the weekend or maybe it's the leave that you've got planned in a while. And when you get to there, you'll be able to recover. I mean, I was really quite surprised by this as well, I knew that recharging was very important, but some of the research now shows that even five minutes of short recharging breaks during the day are going to make a really big difference to your energy level at the end of the day. The idea that you can keep working and pushing it through and, in a sense, kind of store up all the stress and then it will be rebalanced later doesn't actually work, mainly because of the impact that that has on your body. So I think that. What I really advocate is for people actually to start the day thinking, you know, positively about what they're going to do and what they're going to achieve and then to take short breaks during the day. And even if it's at the end of a meeting and always leaving five or ten minutes um, time in between meetings to get up, to walk around, to actually move, to breathe, to look at something enjoyable, to have a very quick, you know, conversation with a friend or a family member, all of those things just help to recharge. So during the day, instead of always pushing out, 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 you're balancing between pushing out and and taking back in. 
the idea, and it, even I found myself writing this, you know, you, you recover after work, you use your after hours time to recover. And I thought, well, yeah, actually, that's my mindset. I'll work hard during the day and then in the evening I've got the chance to recover. Well, that, you know, really is nonsense. You know, evening time should be, you know, that's personal time. You shouldn't feel like you're tired and stressed and, and don't have the ability to enjoy that, that that's just, you know, a, another thing that you have to endure until you can get to sleep. Very I know bad, it's weird, but I, I, I read a thing recently um, by Dr. Adam Fraser and one of the things he talked about is we don't have a resilience problem now, we have a recovery problem. Mm. And I remember reading your book and it just reminded me of that one quote that mm. we have a recovery problem. We don't yeah. recover on purpose. And, you know, that time that you're talking about when you finish work and you should be able to engage with your family and you should be able to talk to your kids or with your spouse or whatever you're going to do, and that should be something that's, you know, why we're here uh, mm. rather than they get the leftovers. And I, I think it's something about it, yeah. that unfortunately quite often the people they love and the most important things in their life are getting the leftovers. And yeah. I guess how, how do we stop that? How do we, what things do we do to, to try and make sure that that's not the case? Yeah. And I think apart from the small things like building in recharging during your day and having, I mean, I think it's almost like having um, a schedule for your recharging, the things you do daily, the things you do weekly, the things you might do, say, monthly, which are all about, you know, activities for you as well as, you know, activities with your your family. But I think in the book, the first part of the book is focused on getting really clear about what kind of life you want to live. And, you know, the, the first chapter is understanding the impact of stress on your body um, and what it's doing to you. So that pushing through thing that we think we can do and we think, oh, yeah, I can recover from that. Well, actually, that's doing damage to your body. You know, that's impacting on your health. Um, so thinking about that and understanding that impact and that difference between, you know, the fight and flight mode and the rest and digest modes, I think are really important. I always think awareness is really good because then you can say, well, hang on, what am I doing there? How do I manage those two states? What do I need to change? So it's a great catalyst for change. And then as we've sort of discussed that whole notion of purpose, which I'm completely in love with, you know, really getting clear about what's your purpose, being able to just say what your purpose is has an mm. impact, a positive impact on health, which is incredible. It really does. I, I actually did, I did one of the exercises you had in the book and was just like it was amazing the clarity you got after finding your purpose. Yeah. Um, and I actually I actually wrote it down. I, I did exactly what you said in the book. I love it when I love it when books are verbs yeah. and they tell you to do stuff. And <laughs> my purpose was to help people decrease toxic stress to to connect and contribute to their society and to have fun while they're doing it. Perfect. Yeah. And I read that and went, wow, I'm I and I looked at the things I do in my day and which ones were in line with that and which ones weren't. Yeah. And then I looked at all the ones that weren't in line with that really weren't that important, so why the hell am I doing them? Yeah, yeah. And so that's just, just by having that nice clarity about yourself, it gives you choice, you know, then the choices become clearer about what you want to do and, and what's not so important to do because otherwise when, when everyone's busy, life goes by in a blur uh, mm. and you think you'll get to the important things later and you always think that there's time for them later and sometimes there is but doing those things you know focusing on what's important right now um is is a much better way to go 
So with all of your history you've done, you know, you've been dean of big university and done some really, really big things in your corporate world before doing the stuff, the coaching and things that you do now. Has your purpose changed over that time? And, and if so, from what to what? I think that I haven't always articulated it or been able to articulate it in the same way. But, I mean, I help people realise their full potential. That's that's my purpose. And when I look back to, you know, becoming a psychologist, even the, the corporate roles I've had, they've been about that. And the corporate roles have been about being a leader in, you know, a, an organisation that does leadership development. So it's almost like a double whammy. Um, So I've been, you know, working with the staff as well as thinking about how can you help leaders to be their best and to get the best kind of leadership in organisations. So I think I I used to feel like, you know, life was, you know, that upwards, onwards and upwards sort of shape, but it's actually more of a spiral where there's a common purpose or a theme or something that that is really your theme um, to to be and to do. Um, And, you know, I've experienced that in different ways, but I can look back, it's always about um, removing barriers or developing people so that they get to live and to be their full potential. Yeah, right. That's a, and that's a wonderful sort of purpose and goal, isn't it, to help people do that. Do you, I struggle a little bit on knowing what to do and not doing it. I mean, I'm sure I'm not on my own. I think everyone has that, <laughs> yes. that same Hassle. Um, brought up some great things in the book about how to actually get that done. Could you share one or two of those with us? How to act, you know, when you know what to do and you're not doing it, how do you help people when when that's their their stumbling block? Yeah, I think being able to talk about why you want to do it and reminding yourself of the why is really important. That's a big motivator for change, for doing things differently. But I think one of the things that I do talk about in the book is about habits and the Again, the thing that I came to understand in the research that I was doing for the book is that we can think about um, our habits as 43% of them are happening without our awareness. So I think that's a bit like a gold mine, you know. So just knowing that and trying to think about what are the things that you're doing that are getting in the way of the new things you want to do can be helpful. So it's not just about taking on more but sometimes it's about stopping doing some things. So that can be kind of helpful. And the other thing which I guess people are quite familiar with is the habit stacking idea. So if you really want to change but you're finding it difficult to do, find something that you're already doing and tag on the new behaviour to that so that that makes it easier and it's easier for it to come to mind. You know, it's like brushing your teeth and then flossing. Yep. Um, putting those two things together makes them easier to, to do. And it's amazing whenever I... we talk about habit stacking, it always comes to brushing your teeth. But it, <laughs> it's just the perfect example of a habit that you do every day without thinking about it. That's you know, right. I know I need to take a multivitamin and a magnesium tablet every night yeah. and I never yeah. forget anymore because I've read Atomic Habits and when you put your toothbrush down, you pick up your magnesium bottle and you take your tablets. Yeah. And I guess that's that's what you're meaning by habit stacking is attaching that's it right. to something that you're already Shoot. doing. It puts several habits together. And I found my exercise regime was not so great. And then during, you know, when COVID hit, I decided I would do something about that. That became a real priority. And what I found initially was that I was trying to exercise a certain number of days a week. Mm-hmm. 
And I found that I would give myself days off thinking that, well, I still have the other days in the week in order to get that number of days of exercise in. Yeah, okay. But what I've done, uh, and I've been doing this for nearly two years actually now, um, is I exercise every day. So my commitment is the first thing I do every day is I exercise. I've got some different kinds of exercise to do to keep it a bit interesting, but without thinking when I wake up about whether I will or won't, I know I'm going to. Yeah. I've got the gear ready, so I just have to put it on and then um, get out and do the exercise, and I found that's worked really well. So the, the whole habit thing is about reducing the friction in that sort of case. So you've got to be able to understand what is it in your context that gets in the way of you doing the things that you have a commitment to. And sometimes it's because you're more committed to something else. And sometimes the reality is in families that other people's commitments really sabotage yours. So trying to work around that and thinking about that and thinking about things you can do as a family or sharing tasks um, is really important to do as well. And one of the things that I think is super simple to do to get yourself um, changing in behaviour is something that comes from the work of um, Teresa Amabile and Steve Kramer, which comes out of their research on innovation of all things. But it really is about um, treating yourself as if you're in a video game. And in a video game, you know what you want to achieve to get to the end point of the game. And you know the various levels and at each kind of step along the way, there are all sorts of interesting signs and points and explosions and goodness knows what else that give you a really clear indicator of what um, you're achieving. Now, we know that's in some ways not always good for us, but when it comes to ourselves and trying to change our behaviour, it's a really good thing to do. So the idea is that at the end of your day, you um, notice what you did today that helped you achieve that small behaviour you're going to change. How many did you do your exercise? What got in the way of that and what you need to do tomorrow to change that? And what you're doing is providing yourself with a bit of acknowledgement that you have done it. And reinforcing those good habits, the habits that are actually backing up the identity that you want. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah. And focusing on just one thing and one really small thing. You know, New Year's uh, resolutions often don't work because they're often really global. They're really big things. Um, And there's no reason not to have a New Year's resolution. So, you know, a big aspiration. In fact, I think that's very inspiring to have a nice big aspiration but then you need to break it down into the specific goal that you're going to focus on now so if it's exercising what's the specific thing you can do each day that's going to help you increase your exercise whatever it might be increase the feedback you give to your staff increase the number of recharging um, sessions you have every day. And so keeping the focus on very specific goals, things that can be done really easily every day is, I think, the best way to get behaviour change. Yeah, nice. And I, I love that idea and going back to what you said at the very start of creating the habits that you do, create an identity. You are, you are now the sort of person that exercises every day. Yeah. And right. If, yeah, you are that person now. Because <laughs> yeah, that's I am. We are. We, we habitually yeah. do, I guess. Yes. Yeah. So you've done that. I, I loved um, some some of the work again by um, by James Clear, where he says, "Just that's okay if you miss a day, but never miss two in a row." 
Those sort of yeah. little rules I really like as well. I, I like that. And I think the idea of not beating yourself up because you don't do it one day is mm. the important part of that um, and figuring out what got in the way and just resolving. So that little you know, set of three questions, what did you do today that helped you make progress? What got in the way? What do you need to do tomorrow? Simple set of questions. But I think it, and, and I think that um, James's idea around that really feeds into that, not beating yourself up for what you haven't done, yeah. focusing on what, what you want to do and removing the friction. Yeah. And it's a bit more forgiving too, isn't it? That, that idea, I'm going to, I'm going to beat myself up and use sort of negative reinforcement to get me to change my habits. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Yet we certainly not for high achievers think that's (laughs) going to fix it. And it just doesn't. Yeah. Um, There was a couple of other things I really, I'd love to explore with you as well. You talked a little bit about emotional nuance. And I love this kind of concept that being able to kind of name your emotions and being able to get a bit more granular with what you're feeling can actually take away a lot of that stress and burnout and give yourself that bit of self-awareness to understand what's going on. Can you can you give us a few tips on how we can get a little bit more sort of granular with our emotions, if you like? Yeah, and I think that the principle there is that what we want to do is not see ourselves as our emotion um, and get kind of fused with the eye. You know, I mean, one of the things I, I don't really address it in the book in the way that perhaps I'd like to at some point in time, but, you know, people who feel a lot of anxiety come to, feel, you know, label themselves as anxious. hate that. Uh, Nothing drives me crazy when people <laughs> say, you know, I'm, I've got blonde hair and blue eyes and I have anxiety. It's no, yeah. you don't. Yeah. It's like and you don't I like describe the- yourself as being a hungry person if you're hungry or if it's cold and you're feeling cold, yeah. you don't describe yourself yeah. as being a cold person, but yet we describe yeah. ourselves by something like anxiety. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it, it doesn't. And there's almost um, a predispos- predisposition to do that now and it, sort of as we're coming to accept mental health issues and to be more aware of how we can help people who experience kind of negative emotions and, and setbacks in terms of how they see themselves, that's sort of giving rise, I think, to um, that labelling, which is not necessarily, you know, it's helpful in some ways, but it might have some downsides. Um, and so, you know, some of the people that I, uh, you know, read and like to follow talk about, you know, when we we describe ourselves as our feelings. So if one of the suggestions is that you can look at a wheel of emotions, which you can just Google and you, you'll be able to find the wheel of emotions. And what it does is it gives a whole lot of different words for similar or a small number of emotion states. So instead of labelling yourself as anxious, you can start trying to to use different words so now I feel frightened or now I feel concerned or now I feel a bit down so you can use different words to bring out that nuance in what it is you're feeling Uh, and then as you've just you know uh, highlighted really nicely there you're not going to then describe yourself as an anxious person you might describe yourself as all of those things if you're going to talk about yourself in that way but it reduces that kind of fusing of yourself with a negative emotional state which is it can be quite debilitating to do that Mm, it can be one of the things you had in the book which I, i i really enjoyed was you had a burnout questionnaire and the burnout questionnaire had had five questions to it 
and it was particularly to do with the work one. Um, I'm probably not, I'm not going to put you on the spot and get you to say them all, but the first one was how often are you exhausted? Yeah. Can you remember some of the others? Well, that the um, questionnaire is based on the three key aspects of burnout, which are feeling exhausted, feeling a degree of cynicism or distance from the work and the value of the work you do, and then feeling that you're Can not you explain your take on cynicism? Your work. Yeah, and it's not a general cynicism, so some people might be generally cynical about the work that they're doing, but it's people who are, um, I mean, for example, in, in my work, if I start to feel cynical about the value of the, the books that I write or the things that I post or um, if I'm recommending that people change their habits, for example, I'm like, oh, really, does that work? That doesn't really work and start to feel quite cynical um, about that. So it's a shift from, if you like, believing in something and knowing something works and maybe feeling enthusiastic about it to no longer really caring about it yeah I, I i read it i read somewhere once that the the cynic has given up but they haven't yet learned to shut up and <laughs> sort of given up on a certain yeah. course of action whether it's you know the topics of your book or whatever it is and you've given up that that's not working but you haven't actually stopped stopped yeah talking about it that's um, right I don't know whether that's helpful, but it's quite often it's helpful to stop other people being toxic towards you when you can recognise them as being cynical. Yeah. That, yeah, they've just given up on this and that's okay, that's up to them. But yeah. don't let that sort of chisel away at, at your belief in what you're doing. Yeah. I, I think cynicism can be really contagious. So if you're in a kind of a work site where you're having to work really hard and you're starting to feel or actually absorb that cynicism for others, um, then that may kind of increase the chances of feeling burnt out. Mm. And the next one on your questionnaire was resentment, and I guess that kind of follows in from that, isn't it? You can actually start resenting those cynical people that are around you. Yeah, or resenting the work that you have to do, resenting the boss and the organisation is probably pretty common Mm -hmm. um, as well, resenting the fact that you don't have the resources that you need. Um, So many ways you can feel it. (laughs) And and then we had being professionally ineffective, so feeling Mm -hmm. like you're not actually getting the stuff done. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, that's right. So, um, and remembering that this came out of the health area. So you can think about people who are, well, I think as a psychologist in my first role, um, I did burn out after a while being quite new and day to day I was um, counselling people and some of them seemed to really want to change, um, even though they said they did. Um, They didn't necessarily do all the things that they were meant to do. And I mean, I initially wore that and thought about that as me not being effective. So if only I could give them the information in a particular way or understand better what their circumstances were, you know, I could adapt what I was doing to be more effective with them. So that was in a sense that, you know, a part of the burnout process was to feel like, you know, I wasn't effective enough. Yeah, I'm with you. And one of the things, one of the things you've got to understand, and if you're in one of those jobs where you're trying to help people change, is that changing yourself is really, really difficult. And the idea that we can actually change someone else if they don't want to change is, yeah, you, know, you may as well bang your head against the wall. That's not going to help. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I can see why you would blame yourself and doubt that you you haven't 
been doing a good enough job when you know that person's really got to want to change, don't they? If they're going to want to, if they're going to want to they, make a difference, yeah, they do. They've got to want to change, and sometimes you know, for some of the people that I was seeing, they they didn't have a lot of resources, they'd experienced a lot of trauma, and so they don't. Yeah, I mean, they're not starting from a great place in mm. terms of knowing what to do and how to do it. Um, and so even now I start to think about how more effective I should have been then. Well, we we always sort of, I love that concept of we do what we can with what we've got where we are. Mm. And, you know, back then you probably don't have some of the skills that you have now. Yeah. You know I mean? yeah. You, your toolbox is bigger now than what it was 20 years ago and hopefully everyone's is. Yeah, that's right. I guess one of the the beauties of working in this sort of area, working with people around their potential, is that there's so much to to know. There are so many different tactics and tools, and you know, I never get tired of learning about you know different ways that I can think about uh, leadership and what people are, uh, how people are working. Um, and you know, writing the book, one of the things. Um, that was really inspiring is that it felt like I was using a lot of the things that I already knew but about everything and through the process of writing about everything I was learning so much more and and really extending my toolbox um, in that process. Yeah nice and the last one you had in the questionnaire which which is the one I think happens a lot is people being disengaged mm. and being able yeah. to recognize that I'm disengaged and I, I think that that's a massive one in terms of productivity for everyone. And even, you know, I, I look back at, at my career and all things I did and the times when I was happy, there was the times I was all, I was all in. I was going yeah. out really hard. Yeah. I might have worked harder, but I was wanting to be there. And yeah. the times when the businesses didn't do as well as they should have were the times that I was disengaged. And mm. I think what, what tips would you give someone who feels as if they're disengaging? Do they have to get back to purpose or what would, what would you say? Yeah, look, I, I think going back to purpose and, and what their purpose might be telling them or what their disengagement might be telling them is that the organisation or the team, the people they're working with aren't necessarily the right people for them. I think the the big value around burnout and thinking about it in those particular ways is understanding what the organisation and, and leaders' responsibilities are the impact of what they do on on people. And so the premise of burnout is that you can fix burnout um, by changing the organisational context, stopping overwork, you know, making, um, you know, policy strategy programs, all of those things really clear to people, making sure they've got the right kind of support. Um, and so those things are all things that the organisation um, can do and that would reduce a lot of burnout. I mean, some people, you know, are such high achievers or, you know, even perfectionists that they push themselves too hard, too far, and it might be hard to to kind of take responsibility for that. But there are a lot of things, there's so much opportunity right now, I think, for organisations to really think about overwork and the expectations they're putting on people. And especially the downside of remote work where there's the the emotional engagement and the social connections are hard but not impossible to do yeah and really thinking about you know how do you make up for those gaps and how do you change instead of just expecting more 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 yeah it's it's a lovely book in the the fact that you you just dissect these things so easily I'm, i'm sure it was very difficult to do it but when you read it it just it everything that you talk about in flexibility just makes sense 
and but you also oh, give us specific tools on how to do it. So if anyone is really struggling with with burnout and really want to be more flexible, both in their leadership for their teams, it's a great book to read. Now, before we go, I've got a little fast five, which I like to, because everyone who, who listens to this podcast are, are big readers. And so mm-hmm. we've got our fast five. You ready to go? Oh, yes. So five quick questions. Don't have to be too quick. Okay. What are you reading now? Uh, I've just read Damon Galgut's The Promise, which is the winner of the Booker Prize because I'm a big fiction reader. Okay. Nice. Do you read a lot of fiction? I read a lot of fiction. I do yeah. read a lot of nonfiction. Um, I'm rereading some of the references that I used in um, flexibility and um, I read a lot of journal articles and I'm really focused on sort of purpose and burnout. Uh, yeah, nice. Well, they're, they're a good combination to, to focus on because if we mm. can get those two right, then everything works out better. Um, yeah, was there a book that was really special to you as a kid? Uh, Little Women. Right. Total cliche. <laughs> Total <laughs> and, cliche. and then you spent half but of your career doing <laughs> diversity and inclusion. Hey. Nice. <laughs> well, but, um, you know, in a sense, that was a catalyst for a lot of things. Yeah, nice. I, mm. Yeah. I remember the I, I couldn't read as a kid. My eyes would go in funny directions and I got sort of double. I remember yeah. getting to kill a mockingbird for the first yeah. time and look yeah. how thick it was. And it was to me it was a monster and how am I ever going to get through that? And ever since then, my my how I look at racism and how I look at judging by first, you know, first yeah. instincts and stuff is um was changed because of that book. Yeah, uh, that's a good one. What book should everyone read? <laughs> Little women. <laughs> <laughs> well, it changed my life. So well, I, I think every young person, not just women uh, or girls, um, should read that one because it's so much about, you know, it's about following your dreams. It's about facing down adversity. It's about purpose um, and, and, you know, clarity of who you are. Nice. And my next question was which books had the biggest influence, but I think I know the answer now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, or is yeah, there another but, one? What I has think, the second most influence? Uh, yeah, well, in terms of kind of self-help or the genre that, that we're in, uh, yeah, because I, I've been a psychologist for 35 years, I've read a lot of things in this area, so I've been particularly um, privileged. Um, I read, you know, some of the Maslow work very early. People like Robert Keegan and Lisa Lascaux-Way, they've got a, a book that's, you know, how we talk can change the way we think. Um, right. And, I mean, even just that principle is a fantastic. I love books title. when you get the premise of the book just from the title. Yeah, yeah. So th- that's sort of, yeah, that, that is something that's been very influential on how I think about myself and I've used it on myself as well as how I work with others. And so if we were going to have a Karen Morley autobiography, what would we call that? Um, so it wouldn't be eponymous, you know. I'm not famous enough to have my name on the front of a book except as <laughs> right. the author. Um, and I think, in fact, it wouldn't be a factual autobiography. It would be more likely to be fiction, I think. I think I'm more likely to write something that's kind of fictional that reflects me. And then I kind of thought, well, maybe flexibility is that. Even nice. though it's nonfiction, <laughs> that's right. But this is this is really, um, it's not quite answering your question, I know. But flexibility is really the book that I wish I'd someone had given me about twenty years ago. Yeah, nice, nice. And I guess it's 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 like the the toolbox we talked about before, isn't it? That we've yeah, you know, we would have loved to have some of the tools that we have now. Twenty yeah, years ago, yeah, it would have been great. Yeah, but yeah, you know, fortunately that. 
that you know 20 year ago Karen Morley stayed curious and kept looking and exactly. and you know went out and found those tools and uh yeah. I'm really glad you put it into this book if anyone wants to get hold of flexibility we can go to majorstreet.com.au and pick it up there how can we contact how can we keep in contact with you Karen uh, following me on LinkedIn or connecting with me on LinkedIn, uh, and I'm at karenmorley.com.au. So certainly if people mention the podcast, more than happy to um, to help out in any way that I can. Nice. Karen Morley, and- thank you for coming on your next read, and I hope everyone gets out and gets a copy of Flexibility. Thanks so much, Luke. It's been a great conversation. Cheers. If you'd like to get your hands on Flexibility by Dr. Karen Morley, Go to majorstreet.com.au and use the code YNR to receive your discount. I'm Luke Mathers and this has been your next read.